Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me speak with you today. It's funny to say good morning, actually. I'm used to saying good evening. It's like the opposite problem. So bear with me if I say this evening throughout tonight. I mean today. <laughs> I just did it. <laughs> okay, so mixed in throughout this year, we, the church at KSBC, we've been exploring the Old Testament to enrich our understanding of God and the history of our faith. Israel has become a nation, they've become God's people, he's chosen them, and he's asked them whether they'll accept his covenant of being his people. They've said yes, they've agreed, and then they've entered their land that he's given them. So now, centuries later, we're up to the division of the kingdoms in the nation of Israel, and then the exiles. So, we know that David was the second king of Israel. We looked at a video about Saul from Susan morning who was the first king this working is this working properly yeah cool okay I won't be singing though like that video this morning so don't panic so we've got David and then his son Solomon succeeded him and he started off pretty well he was relying on God for wisdom but he soon fell to disobedience and idol worship in 1 Kings 11 I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give ten of the tribes to you, Jeroboam. But I will leave him one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem. For Solomon has abandoned me. The northern tribes rebelled against the dynasty of David. They rebelled against the king of Judah. They didn't want any part of it anymore. Because of Solomon's disobedience, he took the ten northern tribes away from his royal line and they became the northern kingdom called Israel. Somewhat confusing because the nation itself is also called Israel. So there's two uses of the word there. And then the southern kingdom formed of Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, they became the kingdom of Judah. So it's divided in two. And now as two, the people all had a choice. They could choose to follow the commands and ways of the Lord their God that they had agreed to, or they could choose to follow the false worship of the neighboring nations around them. The Lord set out very clearly for the Israelites what they needed to do and what would happen as the consequences of disobeying. In Deuteronomy 28, before they entered the land, he outlined this for them. If you fully obey the Lord your God and keep all his commands that I am giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. Israel was to be a light in the world to be showing God's goodness and love around them. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Israelites received these promises. If they kept his covenant, there would be blessings. But on the flip side... The Lord outlined consequences of disobedience also in the same chapter. But if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overwhelm you. The Lord will exile you and your king. He gave them warnings. If they broke his covenant, there would be consequences and curses that followed. So the first king of the north, Jeroboam, they're starting off. And he makes two golden calves and says to the people, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt, that rescued you. 
He led Israel to idolatry, to abandon the Lord their God, who was the one who indeed rescued them out of Egypt. And then every king of the north did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had led Israel to commit. Then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. And this was in about 722 BC. This disaster came upon the people of Israel because they worshipped other gods. They had followed the practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven from the land ahead of them, as well as the practices the kings of Israel had introduced. Again and again, the Lord had sent his prophets and seers to warn both Israel and Judah, turn from all your evil ways, obey my commands and decrees. Because the Lord was very angry with Israel, he swept them away from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah remained in the land. So it's safe to say that Israel, the northern kingdom, failed pretty miserably. God followed through on his warnings because he always tells the truth and he acts on his word. So Israel fell to Assyria. But what about Judah? They're still in the land. They seem to be doing marginally better at this point. There were some good kings. In 1 Kings 15, there was King Asa. Asa did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, as his ancestor David had done. In 2 Kings, he, King Hezekiah, did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He remained faithful to the Lord. But most of Judah's kings, just like Israel's kings, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. So on January 15, 588 BC, during the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon led his entire army against Jerusalem. They surrounded the city and built siege ramps against its walls. By July 18, in 586 BC, in the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, the famine in the city had become very severe. On August 14 of that year, the captain of the guard arrived in Jerusalem. Then he supervised the entire Babylonian army as they tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. The captain of the guard took as exiles the rest of the people who remained in the city. These things happened because of the Lord's anger against the people of Jerusalem and Judah until he finally banished them from his presence and sent them into exile. So Judah too fell to Babylon in 586 BC. And at this point, it's looking pretty bleak for God's people. Not looking good. But there is hope even in the midst of that. When we read our Bibles, sometimes, even when we read stories of the exile, our first instinct can be to think, how does this apply to me? Or what does this say to me or speak to me? What is God speaking to me in this? But the Bible is really a book about God, and it's his story. We're in his story, but we're not the center. Jesus is the center. So in the Bible, in reading about the exiles, we get to know Jesus better. So we're going to look at three characteristics of God to help us know him better. The first is that God is faithful. He is faithful to his word. When he speaks, he does not lie, and he keeps the promises he makes. When the nation of Israel agreed to the covenant relationship with God, 
He outlined the terms of the covenant, what the Israelites needed to do, and what the consequences would be. He outlined what was right and wrong. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the kings of the Israelites rejected all the commands of the Lord their God, and they used their hearts, souls, minds, and strengths to worship other gods. He said, you must have no other gods but me. But the kings made golden calves to worship and said that they were the ones that rescued them from Egypt rather than the one true God. He said, you must not murder. But the Israelites sacrificed their own sons and daughters in the fire in these pagan practices of worship. The kings of Israel and most of the kings of Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They rejected all the commands of the Lord their God and made two calves from metal. They set up an Asherah pole and worshipped Baal and all the forces of heaven. They even sacrificed their own sons and daughters in the fire. They consulted fortune tellers and practiced sorcery and sold themselves to evil, arousing the Lord's anger. Earlier we looked at the blessings of the covenant when the Israelites were faithful and we looked at the warnings when they were disobedient. And in the exile, we see that God remained faithful to his word. He told the truth and he followed through on what he said. Which means that we too can hold on to God's promises and what he says. When he says something, he will follow through on his word and we can hold to that. In the Psalms, we're told that he will cover us with his feathers. He will shelter us with his wings. His faithful promises are our armor and protection. So what has God promised? In Romans 8, he's promised that nothing could ever separate us from his love. So when we're even in the midst of depression and feeling like no one loves us, we can know that he does. In Hebrews 13, he's promised that he will never forsake or abandon us. So if we feel lonely, we can know that he is still there. If someone else abandons us, we can know that God never will. In John 3... He promised that all those who believe in Jesus will have eternal life. So if something happens to us or we even lose a loved one, we can know that there is eternal life beyond this one in Jesus. When I was overseas earlier this year, I faced a pretty big challenge for me. We were staying with a lovely family on our way up to a village where we were going to be uh, teaching the children of the village for a few days. While we were staying with this family who was hosting us, we needed to cook dinner for everyone, and the meat that was chosen was chicken. And some of you may know that I absolutely hate raw chicken. I hate it. I was envisioning salmonella on every single surface, and I'm panicking. My friend was chopping the chicken on a wooden chopping board, on the kitchen table, it's touching it, there's salad nearby, I can hear people chatting outside, just, my friends are just laughing, not worried about the chicken whatsoever. I'm looking around, there's no dishwasher, there's no spray and wipe, the only soap was the one that I bought from the supermarket, and I'm panicking. Everyone else is having fun, and I run away into another room. And I'm crying, crying, and panicking, and crying my eyes out to God. And of course, totally irrational, but that didn't matter. I was so stressed and scared that my breathing was increasing and my heart was racing. I wanted to quit and go home. I was saying to God, God, please take me home, take me home. 
And in that moment of darkness where I'm sitting in a corner by myself, God said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Just like Jesus said to the paralyzed man who he healed at the temple. So I got up, took God at his word, returned to the kitchen. I ate dinner with my group, attempting to hide my red eyes in the slight darkness because I was like, totally fine. And it was delicious. It was a great dinner. But then the Lord gave me strength to go into the kitchen and hand wash the chicken dishes that I had panicked about an hour earlier. And I was okay. He guarded me with his peace. He kept his word. By telling me to get up, he was, saying, he was asking me to trust him. And he came through and he gave me strength to go further out of my comfort zone camping in a village in the coming days. So God is faithful to us. He is faithful to his word. So what promise is God asking you to hold on to? Is he asking you to trust him for uh, physically or financially in the face of instability at the moment? Has he put a dream on your heart for the future that he's asking you to trust him with that you can't see yet? Is he asking you to remember that your identity is in being his child and your righteousness is in Christ rather than trying to be enough on your own merit or your own hard works? Is he even asking you to hold to hope in eternal life in the face of loss around you? So will we trust him, church, or will we try to walk our own way? Will we get up and walk? Will we pick up our mat? Will we go back into the kitchen? Or will we cower in a corner in tears? So that's that God is faithful. The next is that God is just. And we see this throughout the exiles of Israel and Judah. He is righteous and full of justice. He is perfectly good, so no evil can be close to him without it being destroyed. God cannot and does not tolerate evil in his presence. The Israelites, living in both Israel and Judah, they were God's people. They were to be close to him, living with him, as he instructed, enjoying his blessings in the land and showing his glory and goodness to the world so that other people could then receive his blessings. But instead, they abandoned God's ways and turned to doing evil. Every king of Israel, most of the kings of Judah, led their kingdoms in what was wrong and evil in the Lord's sight, and the people followed suit time and time again. They worshipped false gods. They gave glory to those instead of to God for the good things that he'd done. They abandoned the Lord. They murdered, they raped, they practiced sorcery. They sold themselves to evil. Because the Lord was very angry with Israel, he swept them away from his presence and only the tribe of Judah remained in the land. And then we know that Judah is in exile later too. God is not willing to overlook evil doings. That would be against his character. If we had a prime minister who overlooked things like the things that the Israelites were doing, if he covered them up or pretended that they didn't matter, we would be furious. It would be wrong. There should be a consequence. So why would we expect God, who is actually good himself, to overlook evil and pretend that it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter? There's a consequence for the actions of the Israelites, and there's a consequence for us. 
But how often do we play down our, our own sin? I know that I do. We might not have golden calves in our homes to worship, so we think we're doing better than Israel. But what about our idols? How often do we choose to stay comfortable instead of stepping out and maybe talking to a stranger when God prompts us to? Do we worship comfort? How often do we choose to put our trust into holding as much money or assets as we can rather than choosing to be generous to others? Do we worship security? Or how often do we pretend that our sin is not that bad or we compare ourselves to other people? Like, okay, so I gossip behind my friend's back, uh, but at least I didn't hurt anyone. We harbour anger and bitterness, but at least I didn't murder anyone, so that's okay. We look lustfully, but at least we didn't commit adultery. But the heart attitude is the same. It's turning away from God and towards evil and hatred. So we overlook it because we're uncomfortable. We don't want to face our mistakes and shortcomings. If our character is stained, we can't just get rid of it or pretend that it's not there. So we ignore it. In Matthew, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whether or not we try to play down our sin or ignore it, God sees it, and he says that it will be subject to judgment God is just, sin is serious, and it deserves a consequence. The consequence for Israel was exile from the Lord's land from his presence. They had to go. And that's what happened. The consequence of evil and sin is separation from God. It's exile. Because evil cannot exist in the Lord's presence, it must be banished or exiled away from him. And we have a very common word for this, which describes exactly this reality, but we don't always understand or think about what it means in the moment. Separation from God, the only source of life, is what we call death in our everyday. In Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. In Colossians, you were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And in Ephesians, we were dead because of our sins. And this is what the Israelites deserved, and it's what we deserve, but it's not the end of the story. Thank God that it's not the end of the story. So that is, God is faithful, God is just, and God is merciful. And we see his mercy shining through the exiles of Israel and Judah. In the centuries leading up to the exile, the Lord constantly warned the kings and the people to turn away from evil and turn back to him. He offered them mercy. He offered them a way back. He offered them a way that they wouldn't be exiled. He offered them his help to do this, and he offered them his protection as their God. But they refused to listen. And why? Why did God keep pursuing a nation of people and a line of kings that kept ignoring him and continuing in their stubborn ways? Why would he bother? And the answer is very simple. Love. The Lord loves his people. He loves his creation. 
He loved Israel and Judah. He did not want them to be exiled away from him. He had chosen them. So he kept offering them a way back. He said, turn from all your evil ways, obey my commands and decrees. And even more, when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, the Lord gave them this message through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. He promised that the exile would not last forever. He promised he would bring the Israelites back from captivity in Babylon, back to his land, back to his presence, because the land represented the Lord's presence in the Old Testament. And why would God do this for people who were disobeying and abandoning him for centuries? Because God is merciful. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning, which means this morning as well. We can like to think of ourselves as good people, or at least appear as good people, even if we don't think that. I often have people say to me, oh, you're a good person, or when I help or look after my family, people will say, oh, you're good. If I give to a stranger, people will say, oh, you're good. But the truth is, I am not good. I'm not actually good. We can't get it perfect, so what do we do when things go wrong? It's a few years ago now, but I went through a really tough spot mentally during the lockdowns. It was so hard for me to cope. I wanted to blame the things around me. I I wanted to blame my family, I wanted to blame my studies, I wanted to blame God for everything that I was experiencing. So I said hurtful things and I pushed people away and it was so hard on the people close to me. And I deeply regret it now, but I can't go back and change it. And I can't overlook it either or pretend that it didn't happen. So I'm left with that stain on my character. Except that I'm not. Church, just as our God was willing to forgive the Israelites all those centuries ago, he was willing to forgive me. He's willing to forgive us. When I realized the mercy of Jesus Christ for the first time as a teenager, I remember sitting on the edge of my bed, listening to Amazing Grace, and just feeling absolute peace in the Lord. And the Spirit of God is amongst us right now, whether we're here or online, offering us the same peace today. But how? How can God be just and faithful to his word that he follows through when he said there would be a consequence, as well as merciful, forgiving us? How can he be just and merciful? How can these characteristics exist in our God at the same time? And the answer is Jesus Christ. The Son of God who came into the world as a human, he lived with people, walked with people, and then died for all people on the cross. The Son of God, all-powerful, totally able to get down off the cross at any moment in his own power, 
He willingly let people whip him, torture him, nail him to a cross, naked, carrying the shame of the world. They laughed at him, spat at him, and taunted him, and he took every single bit of it. He scraped his broken and bare back up and down the cross to breathe until his last breath. And why? Why would the perfect and good and powerful God of the universe allow people who he made to do this to him? And the answer, again, is very simple. Love. He loves his people. He loves his creation. And he offers mercy to everyone, to you and to me. The consequence of death that the Israelites deserved, Jesus took. And the consequence of death that we deserve, Jesus took. So let's look at the next line of those verses that we looked at in God's justice. In Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. In Colossians, Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And in Ephesians, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. God took the consequence. He is just, the price was paid, and he is merciful. He forgave us when we put our faith in Jesus. He removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, so that we don't have to be removed from God as far as the east is from the west, so that we don't have to be exiled. Our death can be Jesus' death if we would stop clinging to it, if we would give him our burden of sin. And our life can be Jesus' resurrection life. He rose, he didn't stay in the tomb, he's alive and well and looking out for us every single day. Our life can be his life if we would just accept it. So what are we holding on to that God is asking us to put at the foot of the cross? What dark stain on your character do you need God to blot out with the mercy of Jesus? Or what idol do you need to surrender from first place in your heart? Who do you need to forgive or ask for forgiveness from? And who can help you on this journey? Because the best way to surrender these things to Jesus is to pray about it with another trusted believer. In 1 John, it says that if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The Lord was willing to forgive the Israelites. The Lord is willing to forgive us. He's faithful, just, and merciful. So let's come to Jesus this morning and turn away from sin and towards the goodness and the love of God. I'll invite the band to hop back up and lead us as we sing to God again this morning.